0: Welcome to the second of a series of, of our new podcast on employment law. I'm Brian Powell, the director of PCC Employment Lawyers. I'm joined by the other director, Helen Carter, and our colleague, Jacob Reddy. As, as, I, as I mentioned in the, in the last podcast, um, we, we're very proud to have just published our book, An Employer's Guide to Australian Employment Law. Um, this podcast series is, is meant to really supplement some of the issues in that book and and allows us to go into a little bit more detail and discussion for those that are interested. Um, if you do want to uh, get a copy of the book, you can visit our website um, where it's available or, or give us a call. Um, this this week, we are going to look at the issue of um, genuine redundancy in the unfair dismissal jurisdiction. Um, in other words, what are the circumstances where... Avoid an application for unfair dismissal can be can be avoided on the grounds that an employee was actually genuinely made redundant. I'm going to hand over to Helen to sort of talk about the the scope of what we're going to discuss.
1: Thanks, Brian. So it's important to understand um, that the term redundancy has different legal um, implications depending on the context it's used. In this podcast, we're talking specifically about the jurisdictional objection to unfair dismissal. Um, That is a different issue to whether there's entitlements to payments, for example, for redundancy under section 119 of the Fair Work Act, or if um, a redundancy or a payment made um, as a result of the termination of employment qualifies for concessional tax treatment as a redundancy. Section 389 of the Fair Work Act Act is the key provision here and it provides that um, a dismissal cannot be an unfair dismissal if the dismissal was a case of genuine redundancy. To be a genuine redundancy for this purpose there are a number of requirements. Firstly the employer no longer requires the person's job to be performed by anyone because of changes in the operational requirements of the employer. The second requirement is that the employer has complied with any obligation imposed by a an applicable modern award or enterprise agreement to consult about the redundancy and thirdly a redundancy will not be a genuine redundancy if it would have been reasonable in all the circumstances to redeploy the person within the employer's enterprise or the enterprise of an associated entity to the employer now all three of those requirements need to be satisfied for the jurisdictional objection um, to be successful. If that is successful, that's the end of the matter.
0: Yeah, and just just noting and you've said this already, Helen, just really important to point out that that, that has no bearing on those other tests in relation to redundancy. It has that is bearing. just in relation to the unfair dismissal jurisdictional objection.
1: So you could have a redundancy, for example, that is perfectly genuine for tax purposes, but is not Um, because of, say, of lack of consultation is not a defence to an unfair dismissal claim or is not a a jurisdictional objection to an unfair dismissal application. Now, we'll take each of those three um, uh, limbs in turn. What is it meant to say that a position is no longer required to be performed by anyone because of changes in the operational requirements of the employer? Um, The Commission's looked at this extensively since the genuine redundancy um, jurisdictional objection was introduced with the Fair Work Act in 2010 and it's given a pretty broad interpretation but there's some key features that are important to remember. The fact that the duties exist is not relevant, it's the job. So duties can and often are in a genuine redundancy split amongst other employees. Of the organisation. It's one of the commonest things we see when um, employees claim they've been unfairly dismissed and there is a a jurisdictional objection. They say, but such and such is doing my parts of my job, such and such is doing parts of it, it still exists. That's not the test. A genuine redundancy can also involve a reduction in the overall number of people doing a job. There may be seven people in an enterprise doing a particular job, and it's reduced to five. That can still be a genuine redundancy. Importantly, um, it doesn't prevent the jurisdictional objection being successful because um, the employer, or the employee, or the Fair Work Commission may not agree with who was selected for redundancy. That that's not relevant. It is the employer's choice. decide in making the operational decision which say of the seven employees employment is terminated prior to um, the introduction of the fair work act um, unfair dismissal was not like that and if there was a redundancy made it was open to an employee to challenge um, the selection criteria for example that were used and they often did that's no longer the case it's the employer's decision um, it's of course not relevant for unfair dismissal, but there are limitations on the way the employer can exercise that um, choice if the ground is unlawful. For example, because someone's pregnant or someone has a particular um, characteristic such as race, sexuality, disability. But that doesn't. But they can't challenge that through unfair dismissal. They can only challenge that through discrimination legislation and general protections for the purposes of unfair dismissal. As long as the redundancy is genuine, it's absolutely up to the employer to choose which of the employees are going to be made redundant. Um, one thing I'll turn hand over to Brian to discuss is um, the case law around the fact that the commission will not second guess the decision of the employer in relation to operational requirements.
0: Yeah, and, and I think it's a um, j- just a broader point, too, just to, to follow on from from those comments that you're making, Helen, in the sense that I think often the the, the very first question in, in these situations that needs to be asked is, is the termination of employment related to the person's role, or is the termination of employment related to the person? And if, if the answer's the latter, then really... The redundancy is, is not is not ever going to be genuine. It really needs to be about the role. Having said that, as Helen's just noted, the the actual decision, the the, the operational decision itself, is not going to be the merits of that decision. Is not part of the assessment. Um, you know, the commission recognises that when it comes to the way that a business is operated, that is really a matter for the business. It's it's only in circumstances where the, the redundancy is created as a as a sort of as a way of removing someone because of that person as opposed to the role, that, that really the is gonna fall into, into dangers here. As, as Helen noted as well, the, the fact that the duties still exist is not an issue. And, and I've seen an analogy somewhere in case law that it's really a bundle of duties, like a bundle of sticks. A, a, a position is a, a role itself is, is the way in which duties are bundled together. And and if the if the employer genuinely wants to change the way those duties are bundled together, then then that's a genuine operation requirement. Now, there's a couple of cases. You know, one of which I think is quite interesting, that is uh, Mr. Brian Bradieu um, and Eurolinks Proprietary Limited, which is a very recent case in the in the Federal Commission from from last week, the eighth of July, um, and that that was a. A finding from from Deputy President Boyce that the employer efficiency issues didn't didn't necessarily make a, a redundancy non-genuine. The the fact that um, that the employee claimed that there was actually no need to make his his job redundant um, in itself is not enough to show that the redundancy wasn't genuine. It's really about the employer's intentions um, about whether they genuinely wished for the um, operational reasons to occur. And, and the Commission won't inquire beyond the genuineness of, the, of that operational decision. And, and it's similar in the sense um, an, another case that is uh, Mr Jason Deeney, Mr Richard Park and Mr Chris Hughes, Mr Dennis Seaford, um, against Patrick Projects Pty Limited, also this year but from March. Where a number of employees were were changed to um, casual employment, and that in itself didn't didn't create a situation where the redundancies were non-genuine because the actual fact that the employer wanted to employ less full-time people and wanted to employ more casual people, that is a genuine operational change. Um, it, it wasn't motivated by anything in relation to the employee's capacity or conduct, it was merely motivated by operational changes. And the Commission won't say, okay, was that the right operational change to do? Was it was it the right or the wrong operational change? The, the Commission really doesn't have jurisdiction to assess the merits of that decision at all. Um, so really it's a question of what motivated the, the, the redundancy? Was, was it a genuine operational reason, even an inefficient or or or, um, a poor operational decision is still an operational decision.
1: It could be a bad decision. You could have uh, an employer... Employers often, or businesses, will often make decisions that don't turn out to be great. It could be what's seen by the employer or their union... Employee, sorry, or their union as a poor operational decision because there's other ways they could have say, improved revenue or, or done all sorts of things, that will be completely irrelevant. It's whether it was actually the employer's operational decision. It wasn't some kind of contrivance to get rid of a particular employee. Um, that's where they'll it won't be held to be an operational decision. But the other... So whilst the Commission has been fairly um, liberal in its interpretation of operational decision... Where um, employers, in our experiences, often fall down in satisfying this jurisdictional objection is in relation to the next two limbs. And that's what we're going to talk about consultation obligations um, and also redeployment, which we'll talk about later. Consultation obligations um, are basically uh, the obligations in modern awards or enterprise agreements in relation to consultation. So... Um, our colleague Jake Reddy is going to discuss some of the key some some cases in relation to this, and some of the key factors in relation to consultation that employers should have in mind.
2: Thanks, Helen. Um, yeah, I think as as you've said and as you mentioned earlier, um, the one of the key points here is that this obligation will arise only for those employees that are covered by um, a modern award or an enterprise agreement. Um, so we sort of won't sort of delve into now. Um, award coverage and, and, and all that sort of stuff because that's um, quite lengthy. Um, but that would, would need to be a consideration sort of at the time of the redundancy um, by an employer. Um, so commonly the, the consultation obligations that arise um, require that after um, there's been a, a definite decision by the employer um, for major workplace change um, that they discuss... The change, the nature of the change, the effects of the change, um, with the employees that are likely to be affected. So that's sort of after the the, the step one, where there's that operational um, change. Uh, after that, there needs to be the consultation. So this step two, um, and th- there's been some recent cases on this that are um, sort of quite interesting um, and and a good sort of uh, discussion point for employers to sort of consider what exactly is required for the um, the cons- consultation step.
0: Can I make a comment there too? Uh, that just something that's commonly misunderstood is that the consultation needs to occur after a definite decision is made, but prior to any termination of employment. And that's a that's a funny, that's a little gap that I think is commonly misunderstood. You can make a definite decision that the change will be made that may result in termination, but, but it's not consultation if it's communicated at the same time as the employment yes. and terminates. It's, and That's it's
1: even not consultation, I mean, if it's uh, if an irrevocable decision to terminate employment has been made before the consultation starts.
2: Yeah, so, I mean, thanks for that, Brian. That's probably a good segue into um, one of the, the, the cases that I've got here to discuss. Um, WHO and ACY Capital Proprietary Limited um, and that was a a 2019 case in the Fair Work Commission. Um, So in this case there was a a business acquisition um, in early September of 2018 um, and the employee in question who um, ultimately made the unfair dismissal application, she was uh, on leave at the time Um, and this was a sort of particularly brutal um, dismissal in a way because Miss Hu came back from leave after the the merger and business acquisition and found someone sitting at her desk. She'd had all all her um, belongings moved off the desk and put elsewhere in the office, um, and and no one would answer her when she was saying, "Well, where am I sitting? Where am I going?" Um, and that was until her boss came in at, at about ten o'clock and basically told her on the spot that she was being made redundant. Um, so. I mean, it was sort of seem from that and after discussing what's required for the consultation obligations that, you know, most people would probably say, geez, it doesn't they've, seem like there's been any consultation. They've,
0: they've missed the <laughs> consultation there, yeah. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> turned up to work.
2: Um, but, but interestingly, um, they opted to go straight to hearing. They, they missed the, um, or decided to, to not bother with um, the conciliation, which is sort of the, the, the common first step in, in these sorts of dismissals. Um, and at the at the hearing, um, the employer's solicitor um, referred to one of the clauses in the Modern Award regarding consultation, which says that um, confidential information um, did not need to be disclosed during consultation if it was contrary to the employer's interests. Um, so they argued this because they said that the, the business acquisition was highly sensitive, um, and so they didn't want to discuss, um, you know, put anyone on notice outside of of sort of those in the know that this acquisition was occurring until after it had occurred. Um, and after the acquisition had occurred, um, the employee, Miss Who, was, was overseas at the time, so um, the employer basically said, well, we couldn't consult because she was overseas. Um, probably not unsurprisingly, the Commissioner wasn't having any of that um, and had said that the employer had fundamentally misunderstood the preclusion there regarding confidential information. Um, whilst it might have been reasonable not to disclose any details of the business acquisition um, prior to it occurring, and it occurred um, in early September, um, there still was the obligation to consult after that acquisition occurred. Um, and and even though the the employee in question was overseas, um, you know. The, the Commissioner found that the consultation should have occurred when the employee came back, um, and I think he even described it as as a callous act um, with sort of his exact wording regarding the sort of particularly cruel way that the employee found out that she didn't yeah, have a job anymore. I, I agree with that. It's that you
0: know, there's really... I mean, a lot of these things spring from sort of common decency, don't they? It's yeah, a, yeah.
2: I, I think that's probably... It, it, and Helen, I know that you've mentioned this a number of times um, sort of before that that, that obligation is, um, whilst it can be sort of quite formalistic in a way, um, the underlying sort of principle is is common decency towards someone that ultimately is losing their job. And that, that's, that's what's required.
1: And in terms of, I, I think that case also really highlights the distinction that Brian um, referred to earlier, which is there's a difference between what's confidential and the actual definite decision to make operational change, and then consulting after that's occurred. Yeah. And yes, it may have been confidential, and no consultation was required prior to the merger, but once the merger occurred, sitting down with someone and talking in a human being to human being way was required.
0: You know, I, I, I've got a question for both of you, though, too, that, that obviously in that, in that situation where the, the details of a consultation may be confidential... There's that that difficulty, but there's another um, there's another situation related to confidential information where you have, you know, any termination of employment can trigger some concerns around the confidentiality of information or restraint of trade, etc. I mean, is there to what extent can you consult? And and still, you still may need to stand somebody down or, or suspend them from the from the IT systems and these sorts of things. But, I mean. Helen what's your view of that situation where you've got concerns about you know somebody you know doing the wrong thing on termination
1: I think it's two different issues there there's the person doing concerns about someone doing the wrong thing on the IT equipment and that can be a, a, a reason at times a reason to justify say standing them down between the two what I see is in confidentiality here um in this clause is real business confidentiality, matter that will never have to be disclosed in this process. But I also think that if you truly understand what consultation is about, and that's about the impact on the employee of the decision, it's rare that the confidentiality will genuinely be there. It might apply in relation to the employee that turns around and says, gee, why isn't Joe Blogs being made? Uh, redundant, rather than me. You must say I'm not getting into other employees because that's confidential. Um, it might be um, uh, that there's some aspects that stop you from being able to fully explain the decision to the employee. Um, for example, if the if the business was about to you know facing possible bankruptcy, if it didn't do this, and you didn't want to go into the full details of that, but um, if the focus is really on the impact on the employee, as well as giving a broad brush explanation for why the decision's been made, I don't think the confidentiality is an issue as nearly as much as some employers think it is. Because let's not forget, this is after a definite decision has been made to bring in that operational change. Yeah,
0: and I guess that's where i mean, I understand the distinction between those two you know, confidentiality concerns, but just in relation to you saying that irrevocable decision... Um, can't be made prior to the consultation, whereas sometimes, you know, obviously, you know, some employers are, are going to want to protect, you know, take measures such as, you know, if you take somebody's swipe card and their keys and, and, and remove access from the, from the computer system while you're in the process of consultation, is there a danger that that ultimately then becomes the communication a of irrevocable decisions? There,
1: there is a danger, but I think that that danger can be Um, uh, managed by making it absolutely clear that you're exploring options. I think when you're doing, if you find it necessary to do such things as cut a person, and it may be in some cases, um, to cut someone off from the IT system and put them on leave while it's occurring, you then will have to make sure that you double your efforts to consult genuinely with them, talk to them about redeployment options, absolutely do every, you know, absolutely everything in your power to show genuine consultation for them and to show that you haven't made an irrevocable decision um,
2: I, I think on that um, sort of note, that point um, that sort of leads into the second case that I had to discuss on that and, and it is definitely something that comes up a lot um, sort of um, in, employers in a way thinking oh well, I'm not going to change my mind regardless of, of what I'm told um, and and so sort of what what's this need to sort of consult with them? It's it's my my business sort of I need to make a decision that that's that's best for um the business. Uh, and so this case Minescu and Baker Hughes Australia Proprietary Limited um, was a case from 2018, and it was the full bench of the Fair Work Commission. Um, so the employee here, Mr. Minescu, was a geoscientist, um, and he'd worked for 19 years. So. Um, a long time in the role. Um, But operational changes um, in the business meant that his sort of specific work was drying up um, and his role was centralised um, to Kuala Lumpur. It was a multinational company. So the dismissal here at first instance held that it was a genuine redundancy um, and it wasn't unfair. However, Mr Minescu appealed that um, and the appeal turned on consideration of another clause um, in the modern award um, regarding consultation, where the employer has to give in writing all relevant information about changes, including their nature, their expected effect on employees, and any other matters likely to affect employees. Um, so, at first instance, it was found that the employer did not give that information in writing, um, and And didn't satisfy that part of the consultation um, requirements in the the modern award Um, however the the deputy president concluded um, that even if it was provided in writing it wouldn't have made a difference um, to the outcome regarding redundancy and so it was was that exact finding that was um, the the subject of the appeal Um, and the the full bench agreed with the employee um, on appeal regarding that Um, and the reasons for this was that Um, During the consultation meeting, um, the the full bench found that essentially consultation was perfunctory. Um, The employer employer went through the motions, didn't consider what the employee had raised um, and that there was some weight um, and ultimately was accepted by the full bench that um, had the employee been provided in writing um, with, with all those things, that he would have been able to respond fully um, and the employer would have had to seriously consider what he said. Um, and, and I suppose sort of, some further details are, are required here um, and, and a good example I suppose of, of, of what they mean when they say it was perfunctory. So the employee, Mr Manescu, um, put forward some suggestions um, at about 12.30 on the day that he was dismissed. He said, look, I've got six months annual leave Um, how about I take that annual leave um, and potentially in a month's time there might be a role um, that I can be considered to be redeployed to. Um, Alternatively, he contended that work in in his specific industry is um, cyclical. So therefore, you know, in in four months' time the work might have sort of picked up again and he could have been, um, you know, just taken off annual leave, told to come back to work, there's work for you to do, so happy days. But the meeting where he was ultimately dismissed was then held at 2 o'clock, so only an hour and a half later. Um, And and in that meeting, he was made redundant. And so um, the full bench held there that the employer couldn't possibly have considered properly, in an hour and a half, what the employee um, had put back to them. So I suppose the sort of takeaway... Um, from, from this case is that if you are going to hold consultation meetings you need to put in writing to, to satisfy the requirement in the modern award um, the, the nature of the effect the nature and effect of the, the proposed changes um, and, and you need to actually seriously consider what the employee
1: has and, to say and respond as well i mean that in that case correct me if i'm wrong jake but i think that was a fairly long-serving employee as yeah well, yeah well 19 years 19 so i years.
0: mean it, the important distinction there too is you need to consider it doesn't mean that the employer in that case had to take the option yeah. up they just needed to demonstrate and that they've considered they i mean needed, I would, yeah, yeah. And, and give reasons why and give. Not appropriate. Re- i think the key yeah.
1: thing in that case would have been give reasons why it's not appropriate we can't second guess there may have been reasons why it wasn't appropriate um
2: i mean what do you think about uh, from the suggestion that he would go on leave until sort of a a role came up i think what what you said earlier brian about whether it's about the role or whether it's about about the person it's got the look
0: about it doesn't it yeah i I think that if it was
2: if it was about the role and and you had a a hard-working sort of well, well, life's employee, you you would be sort of bending over backwards potentially to find that way, find a way to keep them on board, well, and that seems like a pretty reasonable. suggestion. It's a
1: nineteen-year employee. If it had nothing to do with the person, and look, there could be reasons. I don't know. Well, they've one reason have got to reason, set those reasons they've got out. To set them out. One if they reason, would rely
0: on them. Uh, you know, that's the thing.
1: One but, reason that I could think immediately, this probably wasn't the case, but if there could be a reason where you wouldn't do that, and that could be that the organisation is generally downsizing. We're going to be going through more restructures and much as we'd like to do that, we are generally downsizing something like that or, you know, we don't see the entire... You've said it's cyclical. We don't see that. We've looked back at it. It's not cyclical. That's not... We don't see that's going to happen. But you'd have to come up with the reasons. And the reason... What the reason can't be is just, oh, we just want to tie this off or finish this up, which is often the reason that um, employers will... Will provide to us as reasons why they don't want to go through a consultation process, which is, um, and we'll talk about this more at the end after we talk about redeployment, but in our experience, it's a really um, short-sighted approach because you end up with more problems.
0: Yeah, and it's they're difficult conversations to have, and, there, and there's a temptation, like any difficult conversation, to try and have that quickly and swiftly with the sort of ripping the band-aid off. Type mentality, and that, that's really dangerous in this area of yeah. area of law because it it, it creates uh, an appearance that the redundancy is not genuine, even when it may be genuine. And, yeah. and as we said, that the principles are basically, you know, consultation is for the employees' benefit, and and, and and that's the basis that it needs to be provided on.
1: And I think it's important to understand that there is a a really um, profound connection between consultation and the redeployment obligation. For you, an employer, to satisfy the jurisdictional objection, the employer will have to prove, on the balance of probabilities, that there were no jobs or positions which, in all the circumstances, it would have been reasonable to deploy, the, to which it would be reasonable to deploy, deploy the dismissed employee. So
2: we're up to, this is limb 3 now, this, from this the one This is now limb earlier. 3,
1: and as, as I say, it, it, it is very linked to that because how does an employer prove that now if you're a reasonably small business or or, you know you've got five employees or something it might be quite easy to prove that but larger organizations and and noting that it includes any associated entity of the employer which is quite a broad test um and it it includes organizations or associate entities that might be interstate or not closely located, you have to really carefully consider um, any positions where the employee uh, could be redeployed to. And to prove that evidence, you're not really going to be able to do that in most cases, in my opinion, unless at a minimum you've had a discussion with the employee about it. And that discussion is going to include what are their skills and qualifications, what could they do you know
0: what's their willingness
1: to what's do their produces? willingness etc to relocate well, yeah
2: it's going yeah. to differ from person to person whether they are willing to up and move across the country to take up a role that's you know the the salary is less than what they're currently on it's more junior you, you yeah. sort of don't know
1: but with that um onus being on the employer to establish that it's going to be very difficult to do that unless you've had the discussion as i say unless you're a very small employer um Otherwise, you're going to have to look at um, what vacancies are coming up in the next couple of weeks. What are the positions? When are we advertising, etc.? And have that discussion with the employee.
0: Yeah, and also don't don't presume ever that someone won't won't be willing to do to redeployment. It's it's useful in discharging that onus. If there is, you know, if you're located in Melbourne and there's a there's a, re, there's a job in Sydney, make the offer, even if you think that for whatever reason, whatever you know about the employee, they might not take it. Making the offer, exploring those possibilities goes a long way towards discharging the onus that those those were the reason the only reasonable options available and they weren't taken. Um giving an opportunity giving an employee an opportunity to apply for a position along with other outside candidates is not enough to discharge that onus. So a redundant employee if if you are Going to want to rely upon the jurisdictional objection to unfair dismissal needs to be given any available position which is considered reasonable. Um, so the, your classic kind of spill and fill scenario, where a, a lot of people lose jobs and and then they're advertised publicly and the rest of it, you you just that's not going to be. You're not going to avoid an unfair dismissal application yeah. if it's brought.
1: You might avoid it if it's just if it's a spill and fill that's only open to those within the organization say there's 10 people and instead of just the employer deciding we're going down to five and instead the employer just picking the five they decide to go through an interview process to the five you could still avoid it because it's your choice how you do it but if you open it up to merit candidates outside you're gone and the case law is very clear on that that's not what it's about because again that has the flavor that you're not fully happy with the people you have and you're looking yeah. to refresh in vertical commerce the workforce without going through the process of performance management. Yeah,
0: that's right. And and because you're, you're bringing in considerations of, of merit or, or capacity and conduct, and and in that situation, it's it, it then you know it's very dangerous. You're not
1: and and the only as we discussed, the only slither of of ability to bring in merit-based considerations in this whole process, the only one the only, for an employer is if you've got a pool and you're going to a smaller pool yep. and you're yeah. not opening it up to the outside, and that's the only one. If merit or the individual characteristics of the employee come up at all, otherwise you're in a bit of a difficult yeah. situation.
0: Now, it's also just noting that, that, you know, a point to be made about this is just the jurisdictional objection. So, for instance, if, a, if an employer has failed to consult um, and and they can't rely upon a jurisdictional objection. It, it doesn't mean that the commission will assess whether it's a genuine redundancy for the purposes of of the jurisdictional objection. But if it, if it goes through and is based on merits, and the redundancy was was not a sham, it still was the reason for the the, the dismissal was a um a, a redundancy, a, a genuine operational reasons, and the, and the only. Flaw has been the consultation, and that's going to be reflected in um, in the compensation awarded. So, you know, the the unfair dismissal compensation is subject to to a thing called the the Sprig formula, which is which is all about fundamentally assessing how long the employer employee would have continued in the role um, and offer compensation on that basis. So, in in a situation where in the in the Fair Work Commission has decided that you know all the other aspects of Section 389 have been met apart from the consultation, then it's the likely result is going to be that an employee is compensated for the period of time it would have taken to consult properly. Um, and, that's, uh, and that's really only going to be a question of a week or two weeks. So it's not, it's not the end of the world in that point of view. But having said that, if, if the commission is of the view that the redundancy has been used as a, as a sham or a farce to you know, get rid of somebody... Um, and avoid unfair dismissal, then they're likely to extend that anticipated period of employment quite far into the future, in a, in a way of, of, of providing more generous compensation. So it's certainly, and, it, and it's, it's one of the things you hear a lot that, that somehow, you know, relying on redundancy rather than performance management is a sort of a kinder, you know, or, or less difficult way of, of, of dealing with. With underperforming employees, and there's some serious legal risk in it taking that approach.
1: I think. It's a so, looking in summary, I think some of the key takeaways for an employer is to remember that this um, jurisdictional objection is really only going to be available for circumstances where it's a genuine operational need to. Um, uh, to make changes if there is any performance flavor as Brian's noted you, there really are other easier ways in our experience and cheaper ways because you don't have to pay the redundancy yeah. payment that is well, especially often for false.
2: the 19 uh, the year employee in the yeah. matter that I mentioned earlier that'd be quite significant
1: quite significant um, you as an employer even when it's completely genuine you're going to be most at risk if it's only one position being made redundant particularly for a reasonably sized employer Um, That's just a matter of practicality. When there's only one position being made redundant and you're a reasonable-sized employer, it often creates, um, whether genuine or not, concerns about whether it's a genuine uh, redundancy. So if you have one of those situations where it's just one person, very careful adherence to process is recommended. It's going to take some time, the absolute minimum of a week, um, more likely two weeks, Whilst consultation is not um, strictly required in relation to a um, person who's not covered by an award, we always recommend consultation be, cover- be carried out in any event. And the reasons are, um, are many, but they include it's very hard to establish redeployment options have been fully considered if you don't consult with the employee to a certain extent. Secondly, um, we find that you're much less likely to have a claim if you do it properly with a well, redundancy. As painful as it is to sit down and listen to someone talk after they've been made redundant, it is the most important thing you can do to limit the chances of there being a claim.
0: Yeah, there's some you know, formalities there as well. First of all, consultation must be done in person, but consultation as well for the purposes of this, if you're wanting to rely upon this... Then um, you, you really need to document the consultation, but by, by way of you know consultation letters. If you have meetings, have um, file notes of those meetings. You know, m- make sure that you can not only consult in, in a in a res- in a respectful and considerate way with an employee in person, but make sure that you can show that you have as well.
1: Show that you have, and as as Brian noted, there are often um, issues where uh, you have to. Um, exclude the employee from the workplace during the consultation. We understand that, um, but that's not a reason not to do the consultation. Whilst it can be not ideal or can put an extra barrier on proving genuine um, that you hadn't made a pre-decision if you put somebody on special leave, it is not fatal. You can show that you're going through the process of redeployment because, after all, often their position genuinely won't exist, so there's nothing for them to do. Once a different decision has been made but that's different to terminating their employment and you can take a couple of weeks when you just work through that look for other positions keep in touch with them and that will put you in so much of a better position if you end up in the commission um i'd also like to touch on again on this confidential um, confidentiality issue um employers are always saying to us but it's all confidential it won't all be confidential there will be stuff you can talk about at the very least there will be um you'll be able to set out in writing what actual payments we made in the event the person's redundant you'll be able to set out that the position no longer exists you'll be able to set out that it was due to operational changes um you'll be able to set out what process you have taken in relation to looking to see whether there are other positions for the person so don't into the trap of thinking just because there's a confidential element to the um, redundancy, which there always is, that you can't say anything. Um, I know it probably sounds a bit overwhelming in relation to the redundancy process, but it really isn't that difficult as long as you're prepared to take some time. And as I say, say two weeks, for a redundancy process from beginning to end whilst it may seem time consuming I can assure you from many of our clients who spent time with us in the commission it's a lot less painful (laughs) I would say
0: yeah absolutely okay well thanks everybody Um, we're going to try and commit to a fortnightly uh, fortnightly process so we'll have something for you in a couple of weeks I hope you enjoy the podcast thanks